This is an ABC podcast. This is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Welcome to the program and welcome to an extremely interesting discussion this week that has a story behind it. It's the story of an adoption program that got started in South Korea at the end of the Korean War in 1953 and which since then has seen some 200,000 South Korean-born children adopted to Western countries, the majority of them going to white families in the USA and Western Europe. So why are we talking about this on a philosophy program? Well, the answer will unfold over the next half hour, but in a nutshell, The story of many of these transnational adoptees is also the story of a weird kind of tension between standing out and blending in, between belonging and being different. And this tension can tell us a lot about racialized experience more broadly. My guest is Ryan Gustafsson, and he's a postdoctoral fellow with the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. The South Korean program started in the aftermath of the Korean War, otherwise known as uh, the Forgotten War, uh, which ended, so to speak, in 1953. And the adoption program was initially set up to facilitate the adoptions of mixed-race children. So these were children born to Korean women uh, and U.S., European, um, and possibly you know even Australian uh, military personnel. But in 1953, while there were these special provisions for servicemen to adopt Korean orphans, uh, the kind of legislative infrastructure really wasn't yet in place to organize sort of large-scale adoptions. So in 1955, I believe, a evangelical couple from Oregon um, by the names of Harry and Bertha Holt uh, adopted eight mixed-race children. And this was a really kind of highly publicized uh, event in the U.S., Um, They soon established the Holt Adoption Program in Korea, uh, which still exists today, uh, and and very soon were kind of inundated by requests from U.S. families to help them adopt what were kind of referred to as GI babies uh, as well. Um, So by the late 1950s, hundreds of South Korean children were were being adopted to the U.S., uh, to Norway, Sweden, uh, to England. But by the late 1950s, more children of so-called you know, full Korean parentage uh, were being adopted. And so although these sort of adoptions at the sort of end of the Korean War kind of started as a putatively temporary humanitarian solution, by the 1970s, uh, thousands of South Korean children were being sent overseas. And it actually wasn't until the mid-1980s, so a good 30 years or so after the war, that Korean adoption actually peaks. Um, So in 1985, just under 9,000 children were sent abroad. And to get a sense of of scale, uh, Korean researchers have recently calculated that this means that in the year 1985, children sent for adoption accounted for roughly 30% of Korea's total outmigration that year. Uh, And we kind of end up with the Korean Adoption Program as the longest running modern adoption program. Um, And it's involved an estimated 200,000 children sent to over 20 uh, countries. And you've written about how Asian orphans at the time were depicted by American policymakers as what you've described as living emblems that appeared to solve America's race problem. That's very interesting. How was that supposed to be the case? This is 
work that the historian Rachel Rains Winslow has outlined um, really meticulously. So, so basically during World War II and um, in the lead up to and during the Korean War, the U.S. had started to implement some changes to their racially restrictive immigration system. Uh, and they were also seeking to portray themselves, you know, as a nation that champions and is committed to um, humanitarianism, often religious humanitarianism, um, as well as racial diversity. But when Korean adoptions started, the race-based quota system was still in place in the U.S. And there was no comprehensive legal framework to facilitate these adoptions on a larger scale. But in 1953, the U.S. granted orphan visas for adoptees, and these visas were actually exempt from race-based restrictions. So they were kind of exceptions, I suppose, to the immigration policies at the time. And so with regard to them being kind of living emblems that appeared at least to solve America's race problem, the adoption of Korean orphans was portrayed as a way for U.S. citizens private citizens to demonstrate their humanitarianism and their altruism as a kind of like private, so to speak, contribution to U.S. foreign policy. I should also note that for a lot of U.S. adoptive families, especially in the first wave of adoptions, they also actually kind of viewed these adoptions as a national duty because these children were fathered by U.S. servicemen or assumed to be fathered by U.S. servicemen. There was also this idea that, you know, babies or really young children don't have ties to culture, right, that they would assimilate easily if brought up in the U.S., um, they were considered like kind of exemplar potential immigrants. And in fact, Rachel Winslow's book is, is actually called uh, The Best Possible Immigrants, which was the way that transnational adoptees were referred to by um, U.S. policymakers in the 1950s. And this had the effect of kind of erasing adoptees' migration histories uh, in the sense that they often were not even considered immigrants. And, and even today, this, I think, persists. Um, and it also says, I think, a lot about, you know, U.S. immigration policy, whereby the best possible immigrants are, are those who, who can disappear, right? Who, um, who society no longer views as immigrants at all. So it's a really assimilationist logic that I think is quite glaringly, you know, the case when it, when it comes to looking at the history of transnational adoption and the U.S. immigration system. Yeah, and you trace all sorts of really interesting knock-on effects from this this sort of clean break model of adoption, which minimizes the racial differences between Korean adoptees and their parents. And one of those is what you have described as the transracial adoption paradox. This is something that many of these Korean-born children began to experience as they grew older. The transracial adoption paradox. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the, the transracial adoption paradox is coined by um, psychologist Richard Lee. And Lee defines the paradox as a kind of set of what he calls contradictory experiences that are undergone by racial minority children who are adopted by white parents. Uh, so these children are racial minorities in society more broadly, um, but they are perceived and treated by others and sometimes even themselves, as if they are members of the majority culture. And what's really interesting and, and important to kind of emphasize there is that by majority culture, Lee means not just that these adoptees are culturally white or, as he says, ethnically European, but also that they view themselves and are treated by others as if they're racially white. 
which is, um, according to Lee uh, and, you know, adoption studies more broadly, quite unique to transracial adoptees. And of course, you make the point that transracial adoptee experiences are incredibly diverse and and circumstances vary widely. But is it possible to, based on the studies that have been undertaken, to make some general comments about how the transnational adoption paradox can affect the sense of self or the behaviour of some of these adoptees? Yeah, um, you know, a lot of studies have found that most Korean adoptees in the U.S. at least considered themselves to be or wanted to be white as children. In terms of how, I guess, deeply embodied uh, this manifests, um, there's a recurring image or even a motif, I guess, in, in many adoptee narratives and studies of seeing themselves in the mirror. Adoptees kind of describe a sense of Maybe shock is too strong of a word, but um, surprise, right, when viewing themselves in the mirror because they actually expected to see a white person looking back at them. And this kind of demonstrates, I think, this disconnect or as some adoption researchers have called it, a form of bodily self-estrangement or bodily alienation that abides because their internal sense of self so to speak, does not match up with the way that they are perceived by others and the way that they appear when their image is reflected back on themselves. And so, you know, one of the ways in which this has manifested in terms of behavior is that some studies have found that adoptees have tried to modify their bodies, you know, through dyeing or curling their hair, um, using white face powder, using blue contact lenses. So with regard to their sense of um, identity, Due to the transracial adoption paradox, right, if, if adoptees' families and broader communities do indeed perceive them as white by virtue of their adoption, uh, and if they deploy a kind of colorblind attitude, which was really the advice and the sort of prevailing discourse at the time, especially for the earlier adoptions, right, this idea that race doesn't matter, um, and this kind of love transcendent notion of adoption, then for a lot of those adoptees, their experiences of racialization go unseen, unacknowledged, unsupported. And, you know, in some cases, family members will will refuse to acknowledge that their child might have different experiences to their own, right? Because they view their, their child as simply their child, that because race doesn't matter to them, right, or, or so that's how the explanation goes, right? That racialization isn't going to impact their child. And then growing up, another repercussion is that many uh, transracial adoptees avoid being associated with other people of color, uh, especially in their formative years. And so for some, there's a sense of double exclusion, right? So in white dominant communities, they're seen as perpetually foreign. Um, but in Korean communities, for example, they might feel inauthentically Asian or Korean. They don't speak the language, they have no understanding of cultural norms, they don't know how to eat the food. And so a really common theme running through a lot of these narratives is a struggle to find a place in the world. You're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week is Ryan Gustafsson from the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. We're talking about transracial adoption and the ways in which transracial adoptees can find themselves embodying a strange paradox that incorporates standing out and blending in.
In 2020, you travelled to Seoul and conducted interviews with 13 adoptees to white families who had returned to South Korea. And we've talked about the transracial adoption paradox and how it involves a form of bodily estrangement or self-objectification for those who experience it. How did some of your interviewees talk about that estrangement and what it's like to return to a place like Korea where they blend in with the majority of other bodies? Yeah, I I had the privilege of meeting um, a bunch of adoptees last, uh, not last year now, in 2020. Um, And kind of unprompted, because I didn't, you know, flat out ask them about the transracial adoption paradox, um, a lot of them talked about, you know, growing up in, say, Denmark or the US or, or France and feeling very much like, you know, just like everyone else, but that that was a very internal feeling. But then they started to realize that the way that people viewed them uh, or with a way that people perceived them created a sense of estrangement, right, from themselves and from their identities. So, for instance, one one of uh, the adoptees said, you know, I'm very Danish on the inside. But then, you know, she had to confront like, but that's not how people see me, you know, quote unquote, from the outside. And she just wanted to fit in. She said she just wanted to be seen as them. And, you know, that, that I guess was one kind of manifestation of the transracial adoption paradox and that bodily estrangement. Another adoptee said that he's very white culturally, right? These, these are his, his terms. And he says, he said, you know, I don't, he doesn't think about it consciously, but he'll have these moments where he's struck by the fact that he's not white, right? So again, this is like not even on the register of conscious identification as white necessarily, right? This difference between I think something versus I feel something, that he never thinks that he's white, but then yet he can be surprised, right? Or it'll he'll be struck, as he puts it, at certain moments that, that he's not, right? Uh, and so most kind of had some variation of uh, experiencing the transracial adoption paradox, um, although they kind of articulated that you know, differently. Um, and so what I thought was was really interesting is that kind of, again, unprompted, there was this emergent theme among many of them uh, of the idea of blending in and blending into the crowd in Korea. And oftentimes they would bring this up when I asked them, what are some of the things they most enjoy about being in Korea? Or, you know, just what is it like being in Korea? And a lot of them used the term of blending in. Which, you know, I thought was really interesting given how blending into the crowd, you know, often carries like a negative sense, right? The sense of um, relinquishing individuality or agency or a sense of being politically uh, passive. But yet for for them, this blending in um, was something that they enjoyed. And, you know, the fact that they could enjoy it too, too, was also really interesting that they could derive a sense of pleasure from being able to blend in, which I think is a kind of, it's a very different experience from that sense of not being able to, right, in in the West, um, not being able to blend in, always being kind of uh, the one that sticks out, so to speak, um, that is perceived as standing apart from, say, their families or their friends or their community. I think that's part of why there is this ability to enjoy um, being able to blend in and, and also being able to blend in when they want to, um, again, as a way of kind of experiencing that agency that they perhaps didn't uh, or don't uh, when they're back in their adoptive countries. 
It's an interesting distinction that you draw there between what's known or understood and what's felt. And I think it's useful, as you do, to, to introduce a, a phenomenological perspective here. And uh, in writing about this, you cite Franz Fanon's phenomenology of the black body. What, what's the connection there between the experience of your interviewees and what Fanon is, is writing about? Yeah, so I think Fanon's work is an incredibly um, helpful and useful sort of framework for thinking about Korean adoptee experiences, not only of blending in and the enjoyment derived from that, but even the transracial adoption paradox on a more fundamental level, because I think that his critique of phenomenology as being able to get at, I guess, a anonymous body, right, that is not racialized, is not gendered, so on and so forth, is incredibly useful for thinking how adoptees at the level of what I guess you would call the the body schema, the corporeal schema, is always already intertwined with racialization because right, the body image is the way that you kind of more consciously register the way your body looks like and how you feel about it and so on. But the body schema is the kind of subconscious way in which you deploy yourself in the world effectively, right? It's the way in which we navigate our social and natural worlds in a kind of pre-reflective sense. And I think the fact that adoptees can forget, you know, that they are not white takes us to the level of the body schema whereby the very way in which they bodily engage in the world marks a refusal to recognize their racialization. So I think that they are unable to register that they stand apart, um, not only from their communities, but often from their very families as the only person of color in their families, that the internalization of whiteness as norm means that for a lot of adoptees, even as a form of survival, right, they cannot register, I guess, on a conscious level, that they experience racialization and that that actually stand like makes them stand apart from their broader communities. And I think because of that sedimentation over time, whereby adoptees are always having to minimize their difference, that that becomes built in or baked into the very way in which they are engaged in the world. And I think this um, kind of accounts for this ability for adoptees to not recognize themselves in the mirror, for instance, right? This sort of really deeply embodied sense of alienation and estrangement. What you're saying here makes me think of how in a lot of phenomenological writing, work that's based on what you might call classical phenomenology, the body is often articulated as uh, the site of a kind of freedom, right? The, the body can know things in, in a way that's liberated from the shackles of philosophical reason. And it seems that Fanon's phenomenology of the black body stands more as an articulation of the body as a site of restriction or, or, or limitation. Is, is that partly what you're getting at here? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is what Sarah Ahmed calls right, phenomenologies, um, sorry, Fanon's phenomenology of the I can't, right, or the phenomenology of being stopped. Um, so again, as, as you said, um, in more classical phenomenology, like in Husserl and Merleau-Ponty, right, the, the emphasis is is usually on the able body, right, the, the body that can extend itself 
deploy itself in order to act efficiently in the world and on the world. And in Fanon's work, you know, there's much more of an emphasis on um, the experience of of restriction, of being barred, um, right, blockage, and the kind of injurious impact of having to say that I can't. And so his phenomenology is also a really good way of thinking through one's inability on the one hand to deploy oneself effectively in the world, but also the impacts that that has on the level of the body, right? So as Ahmed says, right, the body, it it turns the body itself, one's own body into something that causes one stress. Um, And I think that is um, very much something that Fanon introduces and and is is, um, not really the interest, I guess, of, of classical phenomenology. Well, you do, of course, also draw on the work of uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty and, and in particular his writing on anonymity. What does Merleau-Ponty have to say about anonymity that, that's relevant here? I was really struck by how Merleau-Ponty uses uh, the concept of anonymity as a, like a kind of precondition right, for social life and as a necessity. So, again, we often think of anonymity as as a negative thing, but but in Merleau-Ponty's rendering, right, it is something alongside individuality um, that is necessary for us to navigate our social worlds. And so, you know, he says in the phenomenology of perception that my body is is the possibility for my existence to resign from itself, to make itself anonymous and passive, and that this withdrawal is always a possibility or should always be a possibility for embodied existence. And so for him, our very openness to the world, our very ability to be in concrete situations also relies on our ability to shut it, for our bodies to shut itself off from the world. So yeah, he says this anonymous life underpins our personal life. And I think that is really useful here because if anonymity is something that, again, is a precondition for social life, then it raises the question of how anonymity is differentially afforded um, and how it's denied even to certain bodies and the impacts of this refusal. And this, of course, is a, is a question of power. Uh, and Gail Salomon has demonstrated in her work on Fanon and also in her more recent book on transphobia, right, that some people are not afforded what she calls the cover of anonymity. And I think that's a really useful way of getting at a concept of anonymity that, again, moves us away from its negative sense and actually um, positions it rather as something that is neither negative nor positive, but simply a precondition. Uh, And therefore, if you remove that precondition, we can also start to see and maybe account for how injurious it is to not be able to be anonymous. And for that reason, I think it's very useful for for thinking, for me to think through, right, adopt these expressions of of blending in um, as being able to kind of have an anonymity, even if it's contingent, right, even if it doesn't last very long, that it's a kind of respite, right, from the way in which they have experienced their bodies and also possibly their identities um, in their adoptive countries. 
And so what do you think that this analysis, this kind of work that you're doing, and I, I think we've sort of, we've already come at this question from a, fr- a few different angles, but just to finish up, what do you think that this work might offer to a broader discussion of, of racism in general? So I think with regard to the analysis I'm doing on, on blending in, I think one of the ways in which this work could speak to larger questions of racism is that it actually like illustrates quite a classic kind of phenomenological move, right? Because in describing the experience of blending in as something that adoptees enjoy, right? It actually sheds light on the way that they have experienced racism in their Western adoptive countries. So it actually allows us to get at, I think, in quite interesting and maybe unexpected ways, an analysis of how the habitual body is impacted by racism over time and how one can achieve a slight sense of difference from that in a different social context that, again, sheds light and allows one to be more critical of the experiences in Western countries. And so, you know, one of my interviewees expressed this in a really nice way. He said that he really liked the absence of the feeling of standing out because he said that upon moving to Korea, right, he began to register consciously that there was always what he called a background hum of attention that was directed at him. And that had just become part of what he said, the background noise of being. But then suddenly he realizes that that that's not there anymore. Uh, and he, he said it was liberating. And so that really nicely shows, right, how blending in can bring to the fore what had previously formed the background, right? And as the background, uh, as, as phenomenology points out, right, we don't see it, right? It goes unseen. And so you know, building on the work of like Ali Al-Saji as well, right? Blending in can draw attention to the way in which our very visual fields are structured due to racism in ways that encourage certain forms of perception. So in white dominant societies or within a particular social, cultural and historical horizon, the non-white body, you know, becomes hyper-visible becomes the object that commands attention and that stands out. Um, So I think adoptees' experiences in Korea provide a really interesting perspective and way of getting at a broader, you know, understanding of how racism functions and especially the impacts that it has on the bodily level. Ryan Gustafsson, he's a postdoctoral fellow with the Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. More info on the Philosopher's Zone website. And of course, you can stream or download this and all of our programs via the Radio National website or the ABC Listen app. Thanks for joining me this week. I'm David Rutledge. Bye for now. Listener.